The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu and Julia Chatterley on Bloomberg Television called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we spoke with Christopher Lowe, chief economist at FTN Financial, about Jay Powell's ongoing search for the natural rate of unemployment. We talked about why he thought the best exchange from the Fed chairman's press conference last week came from a question by Bloomberg's Federal Reserve reporter Gina Smilik, who asked this. You guys moved the median unemployment forecast for 2020 down to 3.5%, but left the long run at 4.5% today. But you're only forecasting a moderate overshoot on the Fed funds rate beyond your longer run value. How are you going to get unemployment from 3.5% up to that 4.5% rate? This was the best question because it elicited the best answer. And that was Powell saying, um, sort of very much echoing his former colleague, Dan Tarullo, that you know, we really ought to be careful about using these variables that we can't measure in our policy making. Uh, whether it's the natural rate of unemployment or the natural rate of interest, they're not real. And, uh, you know, at best you can approximate them. And what he said was, uh, basically, as we get closer to where we think the Nehru is, we have to remember that we don't actually know where the Nehru is and unless we see inflation you know, maybe we don't have to hike as much. This idea that there is a level of unemployment beneath which inflation really starts to take off is kind of like a bedrock concept in monetary policy. Right. The only problem, as you point out in a recent note, is it never seems to show up in the data, this idea. No, there was a terrific study done by Bank of England economists. They looked at, I think it was 23 different episodes across different economies where the unemployment rate got really low and inflation failed to take off. The classic example, of course, is Japan. They've had an extraordinarily low unemployment rate for decades uh, and, and clearly no inflation problem there. But even here in the U.S., the last time we were down at these levels, 3.8 percent, late 90s, uh, you know, Greenspan's big experiment. Let's see what happens if we let the economy run. And uh, this is where things get really interesting, because the Phillips curve, this concept that the low unemployment rate fuels inflation, it works really well for wages. And we had great wage growth in the late 90s. It got up to five, five and a half percent. And at that time, inflation, core inflation, was running between one and a quarter and one and a half percent, the same as it is now. Could 
the answer that you heard from Powell opened the door to economists really revisiting this whole question because the, the kind of view right now is like, yeah, it's pro- Nehru maybe just lower than we think. But people aren't really ready to dismiss it as a useful concept. No, you, you know, it's funny because uh, Alan Greenspan was recently here at Bloomberg talking to Tom Keene and explained the reason it doesn't work. Uh, as an inflation predictor, it works as a wage predictor, but not inflation, is because of productivity. At the end of the cycle, when it's hard to find workers, that's when it makes sense for companies to invest in technology and you get this terrific productivity growth that allows companies to do more with fewer people. Uh, it, It worked then, he's confident it will work now. I think, yeah, absolutely. We're going to have this experiment whether we want to or not, right? Because the unemployment rate is so low. You know, we sort of think of productivity often in the discussion as being exogenous. Like maybe sometimes mm-hmm. something like the Internet comes along and we all get, pro- get more productive. And then we wait for the next big thing. But as you describe it, it's essentially cyclical. And I'm curious how mainstream you think that view is, that essentially unemployment or uh, productivity gains come at sort of predictable paces in the cycle as companies need to invest. Well, uh, I, I can tell you, John Williams, because I saw him answer a question about this, has absolutely no faith in it. He says, you know, my productivity forecast is the trailing five-year average. Mm. I'll believe it when I see it. I think the issue is that macroeconomists really don't have any way to model productivity, but microeconomists do. And what's interesting about that is, of course, Richard Clarita, who's our new vice chairman, uh, assuming the full Senate follows the, the committee's recommendation and puts him on, he approaches macro policy through a micro lens. And when I say it makes sense from a micro standpoint, Think about an individual company. What company spends money on something they don't need? Nobody does. But when you need it, that's when you spend on it. And we're already seeing this surge in investment by companies uh, investing in new equipment. And we're hearing about it in the Beige Book, investing in training. That is because they need that productivity growth now. So it's at least plausible that if the Fed doesn't really do anything or doesn't tighten very fast that we could see unemployment drops significantly from here, inflation remain muted, and that we finally get that productivity spurt that people just keep waiting around for but never seems to happen. Yeah, no, exactly. And uh, in fact, I I would say we're already there in terms of the unemployment rate. It is at a 47-year low, and uh, the momentum is still downward. I think it'll go lower still. Uh, as for the productivity, uh, you know, you see survey evidence, uh, both large businesses like the Business Roundtable survey, where companies are talking about uh, business investment uh, in, in terms they haven't used since uh, 15% growth in the 90s, but also small businesses. The, uh, the small business surveys are picking up uh, that it's the best time to expand really since the early 80s. So I I think you will see the productivity growth as long as business confidence remains high. We also spoke with Morgan Ricks, a former Treasury senior policy advisor under President Obama and current Vanderbilt law professor about his plan to revolutionize the way Americans manage their money by having the Federal Reserve expand their banking services to include ordinary Americans. 
the central bank, the Fed, has bank account liabilities, just like ordinary banks. It has 2.5 trillion of them, more than J.P. Morgan or Bank of America. But right now, they can only be held by banks, of course. They're reserve balances that are held by banks. Um, and they're great. They pay almost 2% interest today, five basis points below as of, as of today, but uh, roughly 2% interest. They, are, they have real-time settlement of payments between accounts. Uh, and they are sovereign and non-defaultable, purely government-backed up to any limit, no $250,000 deposit insurance limit. And so, uh, so they're wonderful accounts. The Fed already supplies physical currency to uh, the general public, and the question is whether account money shouldn't also be a, a public, uh, public service. But what problem would it solve? What specific problems? Yeah. So it solves a number of actually unexpected problems. So uh, first, we have a large unbanked population. 7% of the U.S. population doesn't have a bank account, uh, uh, largely excluded by the banking system. So you could put them on. You could treat this as public infrastructure. Uh. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Uh, that can serve the unbanked. Uh, faster payments, as I just mentioned, so you could have real-time payments. We in the U.S. are painfully slow compared to the rest of the world virtually in terms of having very slow payments uh, because of our fragmented banking system. Uh, you'd have macroeconomic stability and financial stability. So a big source of financial instability is runnable short-term debt of the financial sector. And, uh, and this, we, we think, would largely crowd out uh, uh, runnable debt. Uh, and there's other benefits as well. Would you be able to have an overdraft facility? We wouldn't allow overdraft. Uh, the idea isn't to supply credit, so this is not a means of supplying credit to retail customers. That's not a business we think the Fed should be in. But a non-overdraftable bank account uh, doesn't, doesn't have a credit aspect. So how does this fit with the high street banks, the commercial banking sector that we have yes. now? Because you are kind of, in many ways here, putting them in direct competition with the, the central bank. It is. you know. Uh, uh, so so b- banks' funding costs are subsidized today. Um, uh, they, uh, they accrue large subsidies from the public, various kinds of backstops, uh, and, and this is a way of re- recovering some of that for the public. So, uh, so, so we think it would be some competition for the banking system. That would probably be a good thing. We seem to be experiencing a bit of a rethink about what banks are, what banks could be, whether it's the Swiss initiative that was knocked down, about 100% reserve banking, the eagerness to see post offices become banks, postal bankings, like they have uh, somewhat in Japan, and particularly in the wake of Wells Fargo, people are just like, I just want a place to store my money without having to worry about all this stuff. Why not some of these other initiatives? Why not, say, have uh, bank accounts and post offices? Yeah, so, so with respect to postal banking, you know, this is, we're sort of philosophically harmonious with them in terms of treating the unbanked and underbanked. Uh, uh, this, is, this is a method for doing that. Uh, but we think there are a host of other benefits that come with Fed accounts that wouldn't be matched by, by postal banking. And in addition, one more thing is yeah. that postal banks would have to be run by a back-end bank of some sort. Yes. Uh, most of the proposals contemplate some kind of partnership. It might as well be the Fed. In fact, you could implement postal banking through this mechanism. Uh, you, it, you, you think of a big institution like this serving retail clients, and one of the objections is going to be like, yeah, but can they do customer service? Can they even build a good website? Like, if you go to the Fed's website, it's not 
very modern looking. How do you address that question? Because the user interface is more than just the actual dollar store. No, that's right. I mean, this would be the big challenge, right, is building a retail interface. And, and you know, thousands of banks do it successfully today. Uh, but this would be the, the one of the larger challenges with Fed account will be building that infrastructure. Now, the federal government interfaces with the general public in all sorts of ways, uh, through social security checks and, and whatnot. Uh, so, so it's not unprecedented for federal government agencies to have a retail interface of some sort, but it is a legitimate challenge. This would be amazing for savers, as you just pointed out, because the higher rate of interest that right now the central bank pays to banks versus we don't what get. banks pay to individuals. Yeah. So there's a cost implication here. But I just think in terms of the, the competition for the ordinary banks having to perhaps compete on that level with paying a higher rate of interest, the lobbyists for the banks are going to go absolutely crazy. Uh, What's the political likelihood of this ever even being considered? So, look, I, I think political circumstances can change. And I think that's <laughs> one of the lessons of, of the last few years is that it's hard to know what to expect. I think people are really looking for alternatives, alternatives. Yeah. Uh, in the banking sector, retail customers. And this also would be eligible for business accounts, too. I mean, I would <laughs> think Google and Apple would want accounts at the Fed also. It would be very convenient for them. Uh, so, uh, so I think the political dynamics are certainly at this exact moment difficult, but yes. could, could, get, uh, could open up over time. And we talked with Jason Schenker, president of Prestige Economics, who discussed his new book, Midterm Economics, The Impact of Midterm Elections on Financial Markets and the Economy. And we talked about his forecast for November. I think the most important thing was if, if you looked back at the 2014 election, more people voted for American Idol than voted in that presidential election. <laughs> Not a good sign. Right? And so the implications for, uh, for Donald Trump were, I think, quite clear that, that there might be uh, the potential for a groundswell of support. As we look at this election, I think the important thing to keep in mind is what might not change is perhaps the most important set of things to look at. That Fed policy, the president's control over tariffs, and uh, a number of other factors that we're looking at, like higher labor costs, those sorts of things might not go away no matter who gets it. So can anyone take anything from the, from the special elections that have been held over the last couple of months? Democrats, for instance, who are looking to regain some seats, can they look at that as any kind of indication of what's going to happen in the midterms? Well, I, I think there are some risks in the House, but I think the most important thing is to look at the numbers. And if you look at the Senate, and people like to talk about the potential of impeachment and these kinds of things, mm -hmm. there are 35 Senate seats in this class. And if you look, 26 of them are Democrats up for election and only nine. Republicans. And that means even if folks were to talk about impeachment kind of things, you need a two-thirds majority in the Senate. So even if all of the people up for election in the midterm came back as Democrats, every single one of them, you could push an impeachment through the House up to the Senate. But even if every single one of those senators came back as Democrats, you'd be nine Republican Senate votes short of a successful so impeachment. No go. So yeah. that's highly, highly unlikely. And what that means is most things are unlikely to change. And of course, if you were to see more Democrats come in, there's a likelihood that the national debt, which has already been rising, as we saw with the, with the bill, the spending bill that was passed in March and tax reform, which although had significant cuts, also had more debt spending. So if we look at this, you could see the national mm -hmm. debt only rise quicker if more Democrats come in. How about voter intentions in midterms relative to 
uh, general elections that we see every four years. How does that impact things? Well, it's very, very low. And what we typically see is if you look back to the difference between the 1934 midterm and the 1932, most of these elections have double digit drop offs in voter participation rates in the midterm. So, you know, this is pretty consistent and that's a really big risk. But it's very polarized right now. Does that bring people back to the table? Because it's, it's changed. The feel has changed. You know, it's a lot easier to tweet about something or <laughs> write something on Facebook than it actually is to go to the polls and vote about it. Really? And you think that plays out? Again? You would think, though, really, I mean, yeah. to, to Julia's point, you would think that during the presidential election, you have a couple of battleground states where it really makes a difference. You know, if you, yeah. if you live in Ohio, you live in Florida, then you feel like your vote makes a difference. If you live in New York, not so much. But midterm elections, the stakes are high no matter where you live. Well, and, and, and generally speaking, that's true, but you don't have the pull of the presidential election and there's simply less interest in the midterms generally. And while you might see more interest at the end of the day, the unemployment rate's very, very low. And that's the most critical ah, thing for what determines okay. what happens in elections. So let's talk a little bit about the economics and the yeah. financial markets and how they will affect the midterm elections and how the midterm elections will then affect the financial markets and and trade tariffs. I mean, this is your specialty here. What's the one thing we need to keep in mind? Well, I think the one thing to keep in mind, the most important thing is that if we look at the last hundred years of first-term elections, the number to watch for implications going forward is that unemployment rate number. You three. Yeah, I think so. If we look, uh, there have only been three one-term presidents, right? Hoover, Carter, George H.W. Bush, and some historians would put Ford in that category. Those are also the only presidents that had the unemployment rate rise from the November of their midterm to the October of the following presidential election. So with unemployment rates as low as they are now, if they rise, that would mean the likelihood of President Trump being reelected is much lower. Uh, and if they don't, yeah. his the likelihood opposite. of being reelected is extremely high. That's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. As always, if you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure to tune in every weekday to our Daily Market Close Show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.